So as many of you know, my wife Naomi and I are full-time missionaries uh, with the mission agency Reach Global, where I serve as an area leader over Latin America and the Caribbean. And as of this last week, I'm additionally taking on the leadership for our regional equipping team that works with uh, national partners throughout the continent to train and develop pastors and missionaries and uh, faithful disciples. So while we're very happily living in Emporia, Kansas right now to allow our kids to finish high school, our lives are very much still focused on serving uh, internationally. And that's why we're not always around, as some of you may have noticed, especially over the last uh, few months. So since August, we had the opportunity to uh, help train and come alongside church planters and leaders in places like Porto Alegre, Brazil, uh, Rio de Janeiro, Mexico City, Costa Rica, as well as traveling to Los Angeles and Minnesota for some preaching and leadership uh, opportunities. Uh, And then actually this Tuesday, I'll be driving up to Minnesota to help train a group of new missionaries in the area of church planting. Uh, And sometimes missions comes with a high sacrifice. There's a cost to being a missionary. And the great cost for me right now is I'm going to miss next Sunday and your Thanksgiving feast because I'll be preaching in Salina, Kansas at Faith Bible Church. So you can send a plate home for Naomi and I with our kids. How's that? All right. Who's responsible for that? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. God, awesome. Thank you. Uh, So from then on, though, we're hoping to be sticking around for uh, the rest of the year, if possible, and enjoying the holidays here as a family. Although, if it stays this cold, I might look for an excuse to visit a more tropical location. There are gospel needs everywhere. Okay. So long before I became a missionary, I actually studied missions at the Master's College. And in a class there, I read a book that played a huge role in my thinking about missions. It was particularly formative for me in those years. It was called Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours. And it was written about 100 years ago by an old Anglican missionary named Roland Allen. And Roland Allen was really a pioneer in his day with regard to thinking through what the Bible actually calls us to do in the area of international missions. He broke some deeply held traditions uh, of colonial thinking in the Western world and helped the church to reestablish a real gospel focus in in terms of how we approach the the work of church planting and development. And, And that book... And especially its examination of the Apostle Paul's missionary strategy in the book of Acts uh, proved to be transformative for my life and deeply impacted how I did ministry in the past and how I continue to do ministry in the present. So this morning, I would like to take us through the book of Acts, uh, giving proper honor to Roland Allen, wherever he is in, in heaven. And I would like to share with you four keys to Paul's missionary strategy in the book of Acts. All right? And then discuss a little bit about how those uh, elements might affect how we approach ministry today, uh, both locally and internationally. And so I'd like to pray and then jump right into the message. But I need to warn you that there isn't one verse we're going to. We're going to be all over the place in the book of Acts. So you can put your finger in Acts 14 if you want. And then we'll sort of begin a, hopefully, a really good journey from there on. All right? So let me pray. Father, we thank you for saints of old who continue to teach us to this day. 
Uh, mostly we thank you for your word, and saints from long ago, who give us your authoritative words so that we might know how to live and honor you in every area of life and ministry. And I pray this morning that you'll use uh, your word in the book of Acts and the life of Paul to further equip us to honor you in life and ministry in every sphere. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first key to Paul's missionary strategy as an apostle was the church. The first key was the church. Paul prioritized the work of church planting in all that he did. So there are many good things that missionaries can and probably should do to advance the gospel. There's social work, education, sports outreaches, personal evangelism, a crisis intervention, and all of, the th- all of those things have their place in ministry. But Paul prioritized one thing above everything else. The Apostle Paul was committed to gathering together communities of Christ's followers through the gospel. He was committed to planting and strengthening local churches. That was the priority of Paul's ministry at every step. And we see this very clearly in the book of Acts as we look at his three missionary journeys. So so Paul went on three distinct missionary journeys that took him across the Roman Empire. And we find at the end of his first missionary journey, in chapter 14 of the book of Acts, you guys can turn there, in Acts 14, verses 21 through 23, it says this. This is the end of his first missionary journey. Verse 21 says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed." So in the first missionary journey, Paul uh, traveled throughout the Roman Empire proclaiming the gospel. But he didn't just leave behind random scattered believers. He left behind churches. At the end of his first journey, he had come back. What he found were churches, local communities of Christ's followers. And then we see in his second missionary journey, which starts in chapter 15 of the book of Acts. It says this in Acts 15, verses 40. Through 41. This is the beginning of a second missionary journey. It says, But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through, through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the what? The churches. So his first missionary journey, he was uh, evangelizing and establishing churches. And his second missionary journey, he's especially focused on helping develop and strengthen those churches, which is an essential part of church planting. You can't just throw seeds. You then have to water and tend and help those seeds to grow into maturity. And then his third missionary journey is especially centered around the city of Ephesus in chapter 19 of the book of Acts. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter of chapter 19, but what we find is that by Acts 20, verse 17, Paul had evangelized Ephesus, and what he had left behind was an established church with elders. By the end of his third missionary journey, he'd left behind an established church in Ephesus with 
a council of elders to help lead it. So, so it's pretty clear in his missionary journeys, he was prioritizing the establishment and development of local churches. But we also see this in the very existence of the New Testament. Because the New Testament letters of Paul are written to who? They're written to churches or church leaders, right? We see that in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians, and on and on. He's writing to churches, groups of churches, or church leaders. So first and foremost, Paul's missionary strategy was centered on planting and developing local churches. He was a church man. For Paul, the church was so central and important because he saw local churches as both the fruit of gospel ministry, what it produces, and also as a central means to engage in gospel work. Paul understood that we as the church stand here today not simply as a group of saved individuals, but as God's covenant people, as a new family of brothers and sisters, the Bible calls the body of Christ. That's who we are. Paul understood that the fruit of the gospel message is a gospel people, not just gospel individuals. And that's why the fruit of the preaching of the gospel at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 was not just a group of scattered, saved individuals. It was instead the formation of an actual church, a local church that gathered corporately in the temple courts in Jerusalem and then gathered in small groups house to house. So you may not know this, but the first church was actually a mega church that had small groups. That's how it was structured. And so we see early on in the book of Acts, Acts 2, verse 42. This is a pretty important passage. Acts 2, verse 42, it tells us what those house groups did with one another. It actually tells us some of the key activities of any local church if they want to be a local church. And it says in Acts 2, 42, And they, these believing groups, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So these early churches committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, that would be the scriptures for us today, to the fellowship of the saints, to eating with one another, that probably included the Lord's table, and to prayer. The church should do more than that, but not less than that. Those are four of the essential activities of any local church. And that's why when, when persecution began and the believers in Jerusalem were scattered, we find in Acts chapter 11 that they naturally went out, and what did they do? They planted other local churches. That's just what they did. That's why we find a church in Antioch later on, because scattered believers planted new local communities, like the church in Antioch, which would then itself send the Apostle Paul as its first missionary, along with Barnabas. So it should come as no surprise to us that when Paul was sent out, the fruit of his preaching was not just a bunch of new individual Christians, as if that were enough, as if that completed the job. He was instead interested in doing something much bigger. He saw the fruit of his ministry, the goal of his ministry, as the planting of a network 
of local churches. Once again, the very churches that he would write to later on in the books that we have in the New Testament. But the planting of churches was not just the fruit or the product of his gospel proclamation. It was also the means by which he wanted to accomplish that gospel work. After all, what does every piece of fruit contain in it? It contains seeds, right? And oftentimes enough seeds that one piece of fruit could eventually form a forest. So Paul's strategy was not just to plant an individual church in every city, and that was the end of it. His goal was to purposefully plant churches in strategic areas with the expectation that those churches would then themselves actively bear witness to the world around them, including new regions where they would plant churches and fill that area with gospel light. So he was aiming for multiplication, a tree which would produce a forest, a a fountain of life that would overflow its banks and fill the nations with salvation. Paul instilled this gospel identity in those to whom he proclaimed the gospel. And for that reason, he could simply assume the missionary identity of the local church. Of course they're going to make Jesus known in new regions and new areas, because that's what gospel people do. Fruit trees don't have to be commanded to drop seed into the earth. It's what they do because they're fruit trees. Gospel people don't have to be commanded to share the gospel and form new communities of believers because that's simply what we do. It's part of our DNA. It's a necessary and natural expression of our faith in Jesus and our belief in the good news of his kingdom. In fact, that's really the only way that we can understand Paul's words in his letter to the Romans. In Romans 15, 19, Paul says, From Jerusalem to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Jesus. And then in Romans 15, 23, he says, I no longer have any room to work in these regions. So how in the world could Paul say that he had fulfilled his ministry and there's no more room to work? He had not actually visited and shared the gospel with every single individual in the Roman Empire, right? He simply hadn't done it. But what he had done was establish key churches in key centers of influence, which would then blanket the broader area with the gospel message. That was his strategy. And for that reason, he could say, I have fulfilled my task in this region. There's no longer any room to work. I've laid the necessary foundations, and now it's going to go on beyond me. Missionary Roland Allen, who I mentioned earlier, he put it this way. Paul's theory of evangelizing a province was not to preach in every place himself, but to establish centers of Christian life in two or three important places from which the knowledge might spread into the country round. This is important not as showing that he preferred to preach in a capital rather than in a provincial town or village, but because he intended his congregation to become at once a center of light. And we actually see a very specific glimpse of this strategy in Acts 19, verse 10. 
In Acts 19, verse 10, uh, we, we find that Paul had established for a few years, two to three years, he's in the city of Ephesus preaching and training in that location. But what it says in Acts 19.10, it says, As a result, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. It does not mean that, that Paul himself preached the gospel to every single resident of Asia Minor, or more or less where, where Turkey would be today. That wasn't a personal act. It was by preaching in Ephesus and equipping the saints and helping establish and strengthen churches, the whole region heard the good news. The word grew and grew and grew. The light of God's people shone brighter and brighter and brighter. The networks expanded and expanded and expanded until the whole region heard the good news of Jesus. That was his strategy. We also see in Paul's letter to the Colossians in Colossians 2.1 that he says explicitly that he had never actually met the believers in Colossae or in Laodicea. And yet, those churches had been planted. From where? Churches that planted churches that planted churches. It was the fruit of this multiplication, gospel, church-planting DNA that was established in every believer in every church that Paul planted. So the point, again, is that God never had this plan to just save a bunch of random individuals. His plan from the creation of the world until today has always been to form a people for himself. What the Bible calls today the church. It's us. People like Flint Hills Bible Church. According to Ephesians 3.10, Paul tells us that it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's how God wants to make his manifold, multifaceted wisdom known throughout the universe, even to the angels and demons. It is through the church, and specifically through local churches like us. So the first key to Paul's missionary strategy is the church. And that's why, for me, in Latin America, our focus continues to be on planting and strengthening local churches. Making sure that all the ministry that we do, and we do a lot of different kinds of ministry, but all ministry ultimately flows into or out of the local church. Because the church isn't just the fruit of gospel ministry, it is the means by which God wants to make himself known in the world. And God is gracious in using the church to accomplish those ends. In the past decade, we've seen dozens of churches planted through our missionary teams and national partners throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. And now many of those churches are now are working together to reach new areas with the gospel. I mean, right now, our church in Mexico City is sending its own pastor to Paris, France, to serve as a missionary to help plant and strengthen new churches, because that's what God's people do. Secondly, the second key to Paul's missionary strategy is the city. It's the city. Now, I, I'm sure that Paul deeply cared about rural areas. He did. He cared about flyover states. He did. But the city played a central role in Paul's particular strategy. And this was because the city 
would provide a unique context in which the gospel could naturally and strategically flow out into the surrounding regions. And we, want, we see this once again in Paul's three missionary journeys. In his first missionary journey, Paul traveled to Salamis and Paphos, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, and Perga. Those are the cities he traveled to, which sound like just random names, right? That doesn't mean anything to you right now. So, so listen, yeah, listen to the, what these, these cities were about. Couldn't get that out, right? Thanks for noticing. Uh, <clears throat> lots of love over there. <clears throat> so <laughs> the city of Paphos was the capital of Cyprus. It was a capital city. Salamis was an important industrial city. Pisidian Antioch was the most important city in southern Galatia and a crossroad for the Roman Empire. There are some exceptions. Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe were not as significant cities, but Paul actually went to Lystra and Derbe because he was suffering persecution. So he was fleeing from Iconium, and he ended up somewhere else, which shows that Paul's strategy was not fixed. He was more than happy to share the gospel as God provided opportunity, but those were the exceptions. Then the last city he went to was Perga, which is, once again, it's the capital of the region of Pamphylia. So he primarily went to strategic capitals and industrial cities. That was his first missionary journey. In his second missionary journey, he went to Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Corinth. The writer of Acts, Luke himself, says in Acts 16.12 that Philippi was a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. He wanted to point out this city mattered. It was a significant city in the region. Uh, Thessalonica was actually the capital of Macedonia. Berea is the one exception. It was actually an out-of-the-way town, but he ended up in Berea because of persecution. And once again, he was willing to leave his normal strategy. He ends up in Berea, and because he's there, what does he do? He preaches the gospel, and a church is formed. So this isn't fixed that he was unwilling to preach elsewhere, but he did have a strategy about how he was trying to approach his normal preaching. And then we see Athens, which is obviously an ancient center of philosophy and culture, and Corinth, which was the capital of Achaia. Major cities in the region. And then his third missionary journey, once again, was centered on especially the city of Ephesus in Asia, in Asia Minor. And Ephesus was a major religious and commercial center. It was significant in the region. Then obviously later on, this wasn't his missionary journey, but he ends up in Rome. And we all know that Rome was a pretty big deal, right? He had a goal of getting to Rome. So these cities were all major political, economic, religious, or cultural centers. That's why Paul targeted those cities, it seems. And the point, again, is not that only cities matter, but that they can and do play a significant role in strategic gospel ministry. And today, more than ever perhaps, the people of the world continue to move to cities. And that means that more than ever, cities have the potential for incredible good or incredible evil. Mexico City alone has somewhere between 22 and 27 million people. It is the capital of Mexico City. It's, I think, the eighth richest city in the world. It is a center of political, economic, cultural, and religious importance. It's one of the most significant locations in the Roman Catholic pilgrimages because of the Virgin of Guadalupe. For that reason, at this moment, cities like that become central to our efforts to reach the surrounding region. 
If you can impact a city like Mexico City, then Mexico City will spill over into the surrounding regions and well beyond into other countries and regions. That's why they are particularly targeted by our ministry efforts. So the first key was the church. The second key to his missionary strategy was the city. And the third key was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Very simply put, Paul was not just a missionary strategist or a missionary pragmatist. Paul was very much directed by the Holy Spirit in his approach to missions. Let me read two texts to you. First, in Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. And you can put your finger a little bit later into Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Then if you look at chapter 16, verses 6 through 10, chapter 16, verses 6 through 10, it says this in verse 6. And they went throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I'm not going to unpack all the dynamics of that. I don't know quite how the Holy Spirit was closing and opening doors. He just was. That's what the text tells us. He was. But what's clear is that Paul did have a strategy, but he was ultimately directed by the Holy Spirit. He wasn't just following a man-made strategy. And that kind of dependence on the Spirit also characterized the life of the early church. In both Acts 13.3, which we just read, and then a little little later in Acts 14.23, when the church was about to send out new missionaries or establish new leaders, do you know what they did? They fasted and prayed. They actively depended upon the Holy Spirit to give clarity to their decisions in raising up leaders. Because it's not about man-made strategies or human opinion. Ultimately, they needed God to make clear to them who should be leading their people. The Holy Spirit was also central to Paul's ministry because Paul trusted that the Holy Spirit was genuinely capable of guiding and equipping the church. He trusted the Holy Spirit himself could equip his own people. So today, both missionaries and local churches generally assume that it has to take years, even decades, before a new church or a new group of believers can really make it on their own. We take for granted that that new churches can't really survive until they have, at a minimum, a pastor and then all the necessary programs needed to equip the saints for ministry. That requires a lot 
to accomplish that. We also assume that churches are incapable of really engaging in things like church planting until they are firmly established, which would typically mean in a place like Mexico that you have a church of at least one to 200 people, and in the states that you have probably 500 to 1,000. The idea is that until a church is established, they can't really start thinking about church planting in new areas. But I don't think the Apostle Paul would have agreed with any of that. The longest he ever stayed with a given church was perhaps three years in Ephesus. The shortest was possibly only a month. And he probably stayed about five to six months in each of the locations we find in the book of Acts. So, so amazingly, Paul would actually leave behind churches with no leadership. We see that in his first missionary journey. He would share the gospel and gather believers, and he would leave. He'd leave them behind with no established leadership. And he trusted that the Holy Spirit would continue to work in them and through his word in such a way that when he returned at the end of his first missionary journey, they were now ready to establish elders. I mean, that would blow up most missionary strategies today. He trusted that God's people with the Holy Spirit and the word of God in hand were capable of actually growing into increasing maturity so that when he came back, they were ready to have established leaders. The two letters that Paul wrote to Corinth, if you guys ever noticed there are no elders or deacons in those letters, they're not mentioned because they probably didn't have elders or deacons. And yet Paul expected that they were able and should be able to grow in light of the gifts and abilities that God had given his people as the body of Christ. That's also why it was so damning when they misused their gifts to the detriment of the body of Christ. They're rejecting God's purposes for them. Now, ideally, they would eventually develop leaders, but Paul expected them to be growing in the meantime. And they were legitimate churches, even without official leaders over them. It's actually shocking how much Paul expected normal, everyday believers to be able to genuinely grow through the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. He really believed the Holy Spirit was alive and active in the hearts of every single follower of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit was transforming them directly and through his word. Now, additionally, many of the churches that were planted apart from the Apostle Paul, especially churches like Colossae and the Laodicean churches, they were by necessity planted by young churches and young church movements. So if you have to have 500 members and five elders and a good team of deacons, before you can think about planting new churches, the reality is you're probably not going to plant a church. And yet these young churches, young growing churches, were so pushed forward by the gospel and the need of the world around them that they were quick to share the gospel and to begin new communities. They didn't wait till all their ducks were lined up and in order. The gospel was too urgent. They reached out even as they continued to grow themselves. And they could do that because the Holy Spirit was active in them and active through the Word of God in their lives. So in Mexico City, for example, where we served for 10 years, we had a specific strategy. And we think that it was wise and biblical. 
But ultimately, God does what he wills and when he wills. Because for Paul and for us, the Holy Spirit is not just a theological doctrine, but a living person who both directs his missionary efforts and the efforts of our local churches. And a divine person who ensures the growth of God's people into maturity and gospel fruitfulness. Paul deeply believed this. And so should we. Now, as many of you know, we served in Spain also for eight years. And there is a distinct difference between the fruitfulness that we saw in Spain and in Mexico City. But the crazy thing is, we were preaching the same gospel. And we were doing the same sort of gospel work. So what was the difference between Spain and Mexico City? Very little fruit, tons of fruit. The difference was the divine will of the Holy Spirit. He chose to act in Mexico cities in ways he chose not to act in Spain. So I'm not humiliated by our failures in Spain, nor do I receive glory from our successes in Mexico. The Holy Spirit is the one who decides. He's the one who gives life. And so we trust that he will give life where he chooses. Our job is to proclaim the gospel that will make him known and will glorify Jesus. There was a Mexican partner who once told us, in light of our sort of success or fruitfulness in Mexico City, uh, she said, God is answering the prayers of those who came before us. I thought it was a beautiful thing. God is answering the prayers of those who came before us. It wasn't us. It was the prayers of others. The Holy Spirit is responding to and creating new life all around us. So in the Bible, God does give us some very specific commands and principles about how we should do ministry. But then beyond that, he gives us a huge amount of freedom and flexibility with regard to how we're going to work out the specifics. And that means that with the Bible open and with humble hearts, we need to work together to recognize how the Holy Spirit might be directing us in light of the gifts and passions that he's giving us as his people, and in light of the ebbs and flows of history and politics and culture and opportunity, all of which fall under the direct influence of God's sovereign hand. The Bible is our sure guide, and then together we seek to discern his will for how he wants us to engage in gospel mission more broadly in this present age right now. And that might look a little different from one place to another, depending on the needs and opportunities. It might look different in Emporia, Kansas, than in a small town in China or in Pakistan. The commands and principles are the same. The exact details will be fleshed out a little differently. Let me tell you a story about a missionary friend of mine. He's from my my sending church in Los Angeles. So this missionary friend was ministering in, in China among an unreached people group, the Uyghur people. Maybe you've heard of them. There's a mass genocide occurring against the Uyghur people in China. The Chinese government is trying to wipe out this largely Muslim people group within China. And he was ministering specifically to the Uyghur people. Again, a Muslim Chinese group with very little gospel witness. This is pioneer missions, right? Except that what happened was he got called in and interviewed by the Chinese government. And they realized they're about to be arrested. So within 24 hours, he and his family packed up and fled the country. They had to get out. And it looked like 
God was closing the door on reaching the Uyghur people in China, right? You'd say, okay, providentially, it seems like the Holy Spirit is closing that door. But something else was actually happening that they didn't know. So they fly from China and come back to Santa Clarita, California, where their sending church is. And do you know what they discover in Santa Clarita, California? The second largest group of Uyghur Chinese people in the whole world outside of China. Do you know where they live? Santa Clarita, California. <laughs> they flee China thinking the door is closed for ministry. They show up in suburban L.A., and that's where the Lord is gathering the Uyghur people so that they might hear the gospel. And guess what happened in our church there? That people group became a new focus for the church, not from thousands of miles away, but because they were now next-door neighbors and a new avenue of ministry opened. That's how the Holy Spirit mysteriously at times guides us in his providence. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear. So, four keys to Paul's missionary strategy. The church, the city, the Holy Spirit, and the fourth is gospel partnerships. Gospel partnerships. Paul worked as part of a team. Paul was not a lone ranger missionary. He had his ESV and New King James and just went after it. Paul always worked with missionary teams. Turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 4. This would be a very easy passage to look over and to ignore, just kind of pass right over it. Because basically it's a bunch of names. But let me read it. Acts chapter 20, verse 4 says this. So Peter the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. Who did their devotional in chapter 20, verse 4 last night? Yeah, not too many of you, right? So why in the world did they write this, and why am I mentioning it? It's because in this verse, it gives us the names of seven different missionary partners with Paul. Seven different members of his missionary team. It tells us about Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus. And also tells us where they're from. Berea, Thessalonica, Derby, and Asia. The very areas that Paul had previously evangelized and planted churches. And then we also know from the New Testament that Paul had other partners like Barnabas, John Mark, Silas, Titus, Luke, Priscilla, and her husband, Aquila. And I'm sure there are others at different points in his ministry. So something that this list of names also shows us is that there was a depth of gospel partnership in the early church that bound them together for gospel mission. The fact that these team members came from newly planted churches, remember young churches in Berea and Thessalonica and Derby and Asia, indicates that these young churches were willing to send their own people to the mission field. And not just send some of their own people. These young churches were willing to sacrifice some of their very best in order to make Jesus known in new areas. And for a young church, that is a tremendous sacrifice. For an old church, it's a tremendous sacrifice. 
Our church in Mexico, sending their primary preaching pastor overseas as a missionary is a tremendous sacrifice. And it has been a point of contention. Would you guys be willing to send John Wernley to the mission field? Or how about Pastor Dave? If it would expand the gospel in new ways, open new doors for the church to be established and strengthened, would you be willing to send your very best? Because they were. And they were willing to do that because they saw themselves not as individual churches, but as part of a gospel movement, part of a network of churches working together to make Jesus known throughout the world. And so they sent individual members from different churches to work together alongside the Apostle Paul to plant and strengthen new churches. They didn't view each other as competitors. They viewed each other as gospel partners. And they were willing to take tremendous risks to make that happen. What drove their ministry was the mission of the gospel and not their own programs or structures or little ministry empires. One of the few exceptions from that idea was actually Diotrephes in 3 John. If you remember, he was roundly rebuked for that attitude. As a former leader of our mission organization would say, these early churches were about the bride and not the brand. Their name didn't matter. The gospel mattered. For Paul, it was never about just one church. It was about multiple churches working together in gospel partnership in order to have greater gospel impact. Uh, Simply put, none of us is enough. We need one another. My mission organization, Reach Global, is not enough. Our church plant in Mexico City is not enough. Flint Hills Bible Church is not enough. I am not enough. We need each other if we're going to fill our world with the good news of Jesus. So the four keys to Paul's missionary strategy were the church, the city, the Holy Spirit, and gospel partnerships. Now having said that, I want to make clear that not every church ministry or missionary ministry should look just like the Apostle Paul's. Paul's specific ministry and strategy were, were partially shaped by his unique calling and by the specific historical situation in which he found himself. The reality is that Paul's ministry and strategy were different in some ways than the strategy of Peter and John Mark and Timothy and Apollos. And that means that Paul's strategy is not the only legitimate strategy, and it may not even be the best strategy in every given situation. Our gifts and abilities and callings and context will shape how you and I work out our missionary calling in our specific situation. And that's part of God's purpose, and that kind of diversity should be celebrated. It's a good thing. Different ministries and strategies have different roles within God's greater purposes for his church and for his mission. And they all matter. You see, our human tendency is to pit one kind of ministry against another kind of ministry. We tend to view one as better than the other, and so we actually divide over kinds of gospel ministries. And I think as a whole, that would be a mistake. So let's turn to one more passage outside of Acts. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, it says this, beginning in verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. There are pioneering ministries, and there are watering ministries. You might say Pauline ministries, the Apostle Paul, and Apollos-like ministries, and they are both needed. Our ministry in Spain was a pioneer sort of ministry. Our ministry in Mexico City was a mix. And I'd say my ministry right now is more of an Apollos kind of ministry. If we don't water and strengthen these young churches, what will happen to them? They will die. Just look at Europe. Or look at the churches mentioned in Revelation in Asia Minor. Gone. Planting and watering are both essential to gospel work. We need one another. We plant and strengthen so that God's church can grow into maturity and shine and multiply throughout our world. So Paul's specific ministry and ministry model are not the only ways to do faithful biblical ministry. But at the same time, we should take seriously the underlying theology and values and principles that drove his ministry model. So I'll finish with this. We should recognize and honor the centrality of the local church in God's plan and purposes. So we should give priority to the planting and strengthening of local churches. We should. We should seek to influence the world in the unique spheres in which God has placed each and every one of us, whether that be in the cities or in rural lands or in the suburbs. Wherever God has placed us, Let's live strategically in those areas so that the gospel will go more further out and beyond. We should seek the direction of the Holy Spirit in our lives and ministries with the Bible open, in community, wrestling with what God wants us to do in Emporia, Kansas, and beyond. And we should work together in gospel partnership, striving together with God's people wherever they are, to glorify the name of Jesus above every other name, including our own, or our churches, or our mission agencies, or our seminaries. I think we learned those things from the Apostle Paul. So I'd like to finish by simply saying thanks to each of you for partnering with us. As we help make Jesus known more fully in Latin America, we are an extension of your ministry here. And you bless us and you equip us to serve more broadly. So thank you for your work in the gospel, both here and throughout the world. Father, thank you for giving us the example of the Apostle Paul, the teaching of your word. May you help us to center our lives on your church, on the good news of the gospel. May your Holy Spirit guide us into new lands and new areas so that your people will be strengthened and many men and women saved and brought into the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen.